the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey, good afternoon and welcome, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Geraci. So glad you could join me on the program Crosswalk with Gino Geraci. It is, of course, the program where we typically take your calls, answer your questions about the things you care the most about. Of course, we talk about a lot of different things on this program. But what we like to focus on is the Bible, the historic Jesus what the Bible has to say about Jesus. But we talk about the past, which is history, and we talk about the future, which is prophecy, and certainly we talk about what's going on in the great big world in which we're living. If you'd like to join me on the program, it is so easy to do. You just pick up the phone, you dial the number 303-873-1935, 303-873-1935. Producer Jim will absolutely happily pick up the phone, ask you what your question is. We'll make every effort to get your question on the program. And again, 303-873-1935. That's the number if you would like to join me on the program. You know, we're over a month now into the invasion of, of Ukraine by Russia. And early on, In this um, war, if you will, we talked a little bit about consequences, both intended and unintended consequences. Obviously, there's unfathomable human suffering involved when one nation state decides to invade another nation state, and then they bring all of the resources that they have available to inflict destruction and impose their will. And early on, I talked a little bit about the fact that Ukraine was one of the places that provides a great deal of food staples to the Middle East and a number of other places. And now this cascading series of events is starting to take its toll including the fact that many analysts are warning that a catastrophe is looming, that not just hundreds of thousands, not even millions, but perhaps hundreds of millions of people face starvation. And so experts who uh, make it their life's work to think about global food distribution and a provision of food for the people on the planet Earth are warning about a historic famine. Now, obviously, we've talked about the fact that the Bible says that there's going to be wars, that there's going to be pandemics, that there's going to be famines. Now, what we're talking about is a sort of a one, two, three punch where we go from pandemic to war to famine, but not just any kind of a famine, the kind of famine that literally redefines what the earth is going to be like. 
And so in Yemen, um, this is one of those areas that's going to be hardest hit with the famine. Even now, even before the war, uh, food deprivation was a big deal. One person talking about um, the family said, we live like ants or fish. We eat what we can find. Um, I saw a family, a Muslim family today, um, literally making mud cakes. Now, again, these are children who are playing and they're making a mud cake. The person who was making the documentary film basically said, when was the last time you had real cake? And the little girl who must have been eight years old, same age as my granddaughter, one of my granddaughters, said three years. It's been three years since they tasted real cake. So in the months ahead, experts are warning food is going to be harder to find in many more nations. And that a perfect storm of several problems is sort of culminating in order to decimate the world's food supply. It's been called the biggest food crisis since World War II. I'm going to invite you to call 303-873-1935. The World Food Program estimates that some 285 million people face not just deprivation, but starvation. The head of the World Food Program is former South Carolina Governor David Beasley, who says that the world food supply already faced, again, catastrophe before the war in Ukraine. He said, we're so short of funds already, and now with Ukraine, we've got a 50% ration for people. For example, he said, in Yemen, I've just cut 50% ration for 8 million people. For Niger, 50% rations. Chad, 50% rations. And 50% don't have anything. Those, those who are in extreme need, again, this from... <clears throat> Former governor from South Carolina, David Beasley, who's now in charge of um, the World Food Program. In the United States, Americans have seen food costs rise 10% over the last year. But probably in the last four months, you yourself have seen a substantial, tangible, actual increase in your grocery bill. And I'm not talking about extravagant items. I'm talking about milk and eggs and bread. So the United States has seen the steepest food cost rise over the last year in the last 40 years, which experts say is going to lead to an increase in malnutrition among America's poor. So now there's a couple of ways of thinking about all of this situation. One of the ways of thinking about the situation is, remember, we have a number of different factors that we have to deal with. Obesity, uh, diabetes. Um, is it possible that even with food costs rising 10%, we're going to see healthier eating habits in the United States of America? But in the developing world, this isn't a matter of losing weight or checking your diabetes. This is the difference between living and dying. And so 
war in Ukraine takes one-third, listen carefully, the war in Ukraine takes one-third of the world's wheat off the table. So imagine you got three loaves of bread. Now you only have two loaves of bread. Or imagine you have three sandwiches, and now you only have two sandwiches. Russia and Ukraine together produce almost one-third of the world's wheat, but Ukrainian farmers have been sidelined and Russian exports have been sanctioned. So, and, and again, I'm not suggesting for a moment that sanctions are a good idea or a bad idea. I'm just simply saying that with this cascading issue of events by sanctioning Russia, Russia, of course, can make the choice and will make the choice to cease not the exportation of grain and the war in Ukraine is only the latest of many problems in the world food supply. Food costs were already high. Inflation was already a problem. Fuel costs were already a problem. And so there's other factors like fertilization, floods, droughts, and protectionism. The list could go on and on and on. But what we're seeing is a shift, a change that's taking place right before our eyes. 303-873-1935. That's the number if you want to join me on the program as we watch the world unfold right before our eyes. This is Gino Geraci. I'll be back. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Geraci. So glad you could join me. On the program, the number is 303-873-1935. I was talking a little bit about the food situation and then the this situation where things begin to unfold quickly. And um, if you'd like to join me on the program again with your question about the Bible, with about a difficult passage, uh, with your question, happy to take your call, 303-873-1935. Yesterday I was talking a little bit about principles of biblical interpretation, and I'm going to get back to that subject because I I think it's important that when we talk about um, how to look at the Bible and think about what it says and then draw meaning from it, where you read the text, you observe what it says, and you begin to um, think about what it says, you interpret the 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 most exact and literal meaning of the text. And I'll get back to that. But we we were talking about the food situation and um, how several experts um, are are suggesting that we are literally on the precipice of a of a food crisis in the world. The World Food Program estimates, like I said. In the earlier segment, about 285 million people are facing not just food deprivation, but starvation. And uh, the head of the World Food Program is the former um, Carolina governor, David Beasley. But then he talked about, again, remember, Ukraine and Russia collectively make up about one-third of the world's wheat. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, Russia won't be able to provide food for Russia or wheat for Russia or its client states or China, 
Um, but it does mean that where it was most needed, like in the Middle East, gets taken off the table, or those countries that decide to participate in the sanction. And then you've got other issues like fertilization, floods, droughts, protectionism. Fertilizer prices were up 40% before the invasion of Ukraine. With along with high fuel prices, made it too expensive for farmers to plant crops this year. So Nebraska farmer Scott Spahn said, quote, we've never seen these types of increases in fertilizer. You're talking three to four hundred percent increase in a 14 month period. Add to that a drought that damaged this spring's U.S. winter wheat harvest. In China, severe flooding late last year wrecked the wheat harvest and has the communist government trying to buy as much of the world's wheat as possible. And there's this growing list of nations, including Argentina and Russia and Ukraine and Moldova and Hungary and Serbia, that have banned agricultural exports to other nations. The Reverend Eugene Cho, who's the president and CEO of Bread for the World, says the United States needs to do more to fight global hunger, asking Congress to approve a $3.8 billion supplemental emergency funding. Now, again, this goes to yet – I'm not suggesting it's a bad idea to help the hungry and feed the the poor, but again – We're talking about a billion dollars here, a billion dollars there. As a famous politician once said, you know, after a while, this begins to add up to real money. But Joe talked about just how dire the situation is. He said, let's just talk about Afghanistan. He said 98% of the population don't have enough food to eat, 98%. Now, again, we ask and we answer the question, well, you know what? They have the Taliban government. Don't they have some sort of obligation to stop growing opium and start growing food to feed their people? But that doesn't help when you're looking at a million children under the age of five who are going to die from malnutrition because the Taliban government wants to grow opium instead of wheat. In Yemen, 8 million people are in dire need of food. But you also have in Yemen an Islamic jihadi state that participates in terrorism. And you see as you layer these things, layer upon layer and issue upon issue, it becomes very, very difficult to talk about. Africa's wealthiest nation is even grappling with malnutrition. Even Africa's wealthiest nation uh, faces a food crisis, according to Nigerian agri-investor Imal Silva, who tells us that a majority of Nigerians are facing malnutrition. He said, quote, those that are most affected are the majority in the lower and the middle class of society. Those that were living below a particular level of income would feel the pinch, and that's quite a large majority. And so Beasley warns that this food crisis could spiral into a political crisis, which could 
can conspire into further uh, destabilization. The way he put it is he said, you get you got catastrophe coming to catastrophe. He says, so don't be surprised if you don't see destabilization in several nations over the six to nine months, unquote. So what he's basically saying is when people begin to starve to death out of fear and panic, they begin to do other things. And it's possible that if you don't have enough food to eat, you might be capable of some pretty dark things. So again, we can see how just quickly, how fragile the circumstances could unfold. And of course, we've talked a whole lot about signs of the times and the unfolding crisis and how quickly things could go from bad to worse. 303 873-1935, that's the the number if you want to join me on the air. We were talking a little bit about interpretation. And of course, I wanted to talk a little bit about biblical hermeneutics, but before I did that, I wanted to ask and answer that other question about um, why are there so many different quote-unquote Christian interpretations? Maybe you've asked that question. Well, if there's only, quote-unquote, one interpretation, then why do so many different people uh, draw so many different conclusions about so many different subjects? It's a fair enough question. 303-873-1935 in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 5, the Scripture says there's one Lord, and there's one faith, and there's one baptism. And so that passage talks about the unity that you would expect or that you would hope would exist in the body of Christ as we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, which is verse 4. In verse 3, Paul makes an appeal to humility and meekness and patience and love, all of which are necessary to preserve unity. So according to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 through 13, the Holy Spirit knows the mind of God. In verse 11, well, in verse 10 it says, these things, uh, actually it's 1 Corinthians chapter 2. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the, the Spirit of that person, which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So, that shows us that the Holy Spirit knows the mind of God, which he reveals, verse 10, and teaches in verse 13, to those whom he indwells. That activity of the Holy Spirit is what theologians call illumination. And I'll talk more about that when we come back. 303 873 1935. I'll be back. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Geraci. So glad you could join me on the program. The number is 303-873-1935, 303-873-1935. We're taking your calls. Let's see who's up. Julie 
in Denver. Welcome to the program. Hi, Gino. Can you hear me okay? I can, but use your big voice. Use use your big radio voice. Okay. Can you hear me good? It's a it's still a little muffled. How about now? That's much better. Is that better? Yes, that is much better. You were okay. muffled before. Yeah, I, I I did what your helper told me to do, and I took it off Bluetooth. I know <laughs> you're busy. Um, I have a question. Um, a friend of mine and I were talking about um, salvation, and uh, we looked at Genesis, I think it's 3, 4, where it talks about Eve and how um, we were talking about how when she disobeyed and, um, you know, death was brought into the world because of her disobedience, um, that she died. She didn't die immediately because death was brought into the world, right? Correct. But she died a spiritual death. At that point, at the point of her disobedience. Yeah. Right. And then, so then what happens to her? Does she, does she obtain salvation? Well, that's a great question. And I guess part of the way I would answer it is that the Bible doesn't specifically say she, Adam and Eve aren't in Hebrews chapter 11 of the people, um, the great heroes of the faith. But the way that I would think about this is even before they sinned, they they understood what it meant to walk with God, to know God, to have a real relationship with God. And so then they fall into this profound sin and then Adam and Eve are given a promise by God in Genesis 3.15. If you go, go further in the text where it says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So there's this messianic promise that's made. And then in verse 21, God slays an animal and then clothes Adam and Eve after the fall in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. And so based on that promise and then based on their covering, and then so, so the big question becomes, are they saved? And I'm going to suggest to you, if you put all of those facts together, that Adam and Eve are most likely saved. And, and so because remember, everyone is saved exactly the same way by grace through faith. So the the way that I would think about this are all of the elements necessary for them to be saved. Well, faith has to be present, sacrifice has to be made, blood has to be shed, and they have to believe. They have to believe. And so all so so God makes a promise. The promise is I am going to make a provision from your own body of a person who's going to come, who's going to be the satisfying solution to the problem of sin. So, so the big question becomes, well, did they believe that? I suspect that they did. I did. And I, I was considering the question myself and I thought, well, God took care of them. He was still so very gracious with them after they did that terrible thing that was going to affect, you know, the entire, you know, human human population. And so if he was going to be so gracious to take such good care of them afterwards, 
and still provide for them, even though it must have been awful to be taken out of the garden, but he still, you know, and then he would gave us Jesus to them. I think I, I couldn't I couldn't think that he wouldn't do that. But then I well, worry that I'm always I fall back on that, well God is so good he wouldn't do that. Well and and again, that's why I say the Bible isn't specific, but if you if we do the math and we say a promise is given, is the promise believed and do they live their lives subsequently in the in, in that belief? And again, you know, some people will argue that that they're absent from the uh, Hebrews chapter eleven, but not everybody who's saved is in Hebrews chapter eleven. So again. Is there a definitive answer? No, but I have every reason to believe that uh, that we're going to see Adam in heaven. Awesome. And I have one more question. You were you were talking about the Holy Spirit. Uh huh. And I've been wondering about what is that that power that it talks about that where it says that same power that raised Jesus from the dead is in us. Right. What what is that power? That is the very power and presence of God. And so when we ask and we answer the question, who raised Jesus from the dead? The Bible says uh, that the Father raised Jesus from the dead, that, the, that, that Jesus raised himself from the dead, and that the Spirit of God raised Jesus from the dead. So when it says the power which which dwells in you seems to be the presence of God in the life of the believer, because Jesus said, I'll be with you and in you that the father would be in you. And the, so the, the father, the son and the Holy spirit are all present in the believer who has been born again. And, and so, so it's not so much a, a, an actual power that we have. No, it's, it's more a person. Of the presence of God. It, I'm thinking it's the presence of God. It isn't some sort of intrinsic power. Oh, um, okay. the, the, in other words, like uh, by intrinsic power, I mean you know the ability to rip a phone book in half, or you know, yeah, yeah. L- l- jump over a tall building with a single bound. No, or... it's talking about this Holy Spirit power. And so, what what is this power? It's the yeah. it's the kind of power that gives you the ability to be born again. It's the power that cleanses you from sin. It's the power oh. that that will make it possible for you to hear and obey God. And then it is the power that will find fruition in the promises of God when Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life, and he that believeth in me, even if he were dead, yet shall he live. This is the kind of power that will bring you back to life. Yes. Yeah. That's what okay. I think. Okay. So I think well, yeah, that's what I was wondering. I kept thinking of my... Like, you know, you hear people, they they have this powerful prayers, and I believe that God heals through prayer and stuff. And is, is that something that we, we have and we don't realize we have? Well, you I know, think and, the, way, the way that I would think about it is that, that all believers have what the Bible calls a measure of faith. All believers have the same 
um, presence of God in their life in the sense of if you're born again by the Holy Spirit, Christ lives in you. In Romans chapter 12, verse 3, Paul says, For by grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to have sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned him. So the way that I would think about it is each of us is given a measure of faith, and some of us, that measure increases, and so the Bible talks about, let it be done to you according to your faith, the implication seems to be everybody's given some faith. Jesus said, if you have the faith of the size of the of a, a mustard seed, you'll be able to say to that mountain, be, be removed. So apparently the measure of faith is, is given, and then we're encouraged to be of sober judgment. We should recognize the limits of our, of our gift. And, and see that other people possess gift. And I think some people are given literally a gift of faith so that they can, they can do stuff that is yeah. pretty remarkable. You know, have you ever said to someone, how did you have enough faith to do that or to, and then fill in the blank? Yeah, yeah, I have. <laughs> <laughs> well, so thank you. Yes. And, and so it's okay to say increase our faith (laughs) (laughs) hey thank you this is Gino Geraci thanks for joining me 303-873-1935 I'll be back so welcome back ladies and gentlemen boys and girls the number is 303-873-1935 303-873-1935 you know, I I was going to talk a little bit about the interpretive issue, you know, why are there so many interpretations? And I talked about Ephesians chapter four, um, verse five about there's one Lord and one faith and one baptism. And um, so that Paul is emphasizing the unity. It's a sort of an expectation of unity in Ephesians chapter four, where, but right before that in verse four, it says there's one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. And then one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. And so Paul makes an appeal to humility, meekness, and patience, and love. These are the the necessary ingredients in order to preserve unity. And um, so in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 through 13, the Holy Spirit knows the mind of God, which he reveals and teaches to those whom he indwells. And like I indicated earlier, this activity, the activity of the Holy Spirit in present in the life of the believer means that that the Holy Spirit is revealing, teaching, indwelling so that we can understand. So in a perfect world, every believer would dutifully study 
the Bible. Like it says in Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. One of the interesting things that I saw today was that this there's a growing group of, of um, I guess, <laughs> there's a Christ, just like there's a famine in uh, a real famine of food deprivation, there's a growing group of people who won't read their Bible. According to this study, the good news was about 50% of the people who were surveyed, they said that they believe what the Bible says, but they don't actually read it on a regular basis. The, according to the survey, Bible reading is lower now than it's ever been. And I should have uh, um, my friend on to talk about Bible reading again, 303-873-1935. But so there are different reasons why people come to different conclusions. Now, this goes to the interpretive issue. You know, ask any educator, even the best classroom teacher has has his share of wayward students who seem to resist learning no matter what the teacher does. So one reason different people have different interpretations of the Bible is simply, I'm going to suggest to you, some aren't listening to the teacher which in this case is the Holy Spirit. Now, that might sound arrogant unless, of course, you think about what the Bible says about what it means to be born again and then having the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. And this is why R.A. Torrey, who was a close companion of D.L. Moody, he wrote um, a book about the importance of, and value of proper Bible study. And so when he was writing his book about the importance and value of proper Bible study, at the top of the list of, 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 of the principles of biblical interpretation, at the top of the list, he put, number one, get absolutely right with God yourself by the absolute surrender of your will to him. In other words, on the journey to interpreting what the Bible means, he says, make sure that you have a right relationship with God and that you're right with God. So a couple of the reasons why maybe people come to different conclusions, the first one is the issue of unbelief. The fact is that many who claim to be Christians, they've never been born again. They wear the label of Christian, but they've never experienced the power of God and regeneration in their heart. They are what people like, um, well, people like Warren Wiersbe and, and J. Vernon McGee called make-believers, they wear the label of Christian, but they're not really Christian because they've never been changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Many who do not even believe the Bible to be true presume to teach it. Now, I think this is one of the great tragedies of our time. 
I'm sure that there are people listening right at this very, very moment who go to churches, and if you were to go up to your pastor or preacher or teacher and ask the question, do you believe this book that you're teaching, that it's authoritative, inerrant, infallible, if you will, that it is true, that it's it's the very word of God, and that when you are teaching it, you are teaching the very words of God. They claim to speak for God, but they live their lives in this sort of catatonic state of unbelief. So what if I told you that perhaps false interpretations of Scripture might come from the fact of a group of people who are reading this book and they don't really believe it's true. Now, it's impossible for an unbeliever to correctly interpret the Scripture. How do we know that? In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul writes, the man without the Spirit, that's the man who doesn't have the Holy Spirit, doesn't accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually discerned. An unsaved human being can't understand the truth of the Bible. He has no illumination. Now, remember what I said earlier about that subject of illumination. This is the idea that the Holy Spirit knows the mind of God in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 through 13, which he reveals in verse 10 and teaches in verse 13 to those that he indwells. That is, that the Holy Spirit is indwelling. According to the Bible, not everyone who possesses the Holy Spirit actually listens to the Holy Spirit. There are Christians who grieve the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, it's Paul writes to the Ephesians, and he says, and do not, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So if you ask a teacher, if you ask an educator, even the best teachers... Is it possible that you could be the best teacher in the world, but you have students who are going to resist you, no matter how good of a job you do? And so that's why I said, if you don't listen to the teacher, the Holy Spirit, then you're going to have some problems. An example of the chaos created by unbelief is found in John chapter 12, verses 28 and 29, where Jesus prays to the Father and he says, Father, glorify your name. And the Father responds with an audible voice from heaven, which everyone nearby hears. Notice, however, the difference in the interpretation. Quote, the crowd that was there heard it, had thundered, Others said an angel had spoken to him. Everyone heard the same thing, an intelligible statement from heaven. Yet everyone heard 
what they wanted to hear. So unbelief is a problem. A lack of training can sometimes be a problem. The Apostle Peter warned against those who misinterpret the Scripture. He attributes their spurious teachings in part uh, to the fact that they are ignorant. That's his word, 2 Corinthians 3.16, as he does in all his letters, um, speaking about Paul, when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some uh, things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So ignorance can be a problem. Instability can be a problem. Lack of training can be a problem. And unbelief can be a problem. This is Gino Dracy. Thanks for joining me. I'll be back taking your calls, answering your questions. The number 303-873-1935. Stay tuned. We'll have a whole lot more. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.